You are listening to Booth One. As you've heard, you're listening to Booth One. Gary Zabinski and Frank Taranjo here, your hosts with the most in lively conversation about the arts and popular culture in, dare I say, in all of America, Frank? I think you should say it. Whether it's true or not, I'm going to say it. In all of America. Yay. (laughs) We were recently featured as guests on Rick Hogan's WGN radio program, After Hours. Did you enjoy your time on the program, Frank? We were on for a whole hour. We were, yeah. yeah. No, That uh, was significant. Yeah, he was great. He was very into what we do, and he kept asking us questions and saying some nice things, and so it was really, really fun. You get a taste of Rick Hogan on a previous episode that we did about three episodes ago. He's the consummate professional. He is, and he's a Chicago legend, really. And he's done his radio show for years and years, Mm -hmm. and he made us feel so comfortable and so... Well, kind of famous. Did you feel famous? Yeah, a little like bit? we were special. Like he was like, I really am so glad you guys are here. He promoted our show. He called us one of the best things, not just podcasts, yeah, but things yeah. that he's ever heard on a <laughs> media. Uh, platform. He disparaged most podcasts. I think 99% of them he did not care for. (laughs) But ours was right up there with one of his favorite things. And And he said he was going back and listening to all the old ones. So that's kind of above and beyond. We have mutual friends. We've had mutual guests on. Stuart Dybeck, for instance, and Kurt Elling, and uh, Tony Fitzpatrick, people like that. It was really, really fun. We're going to post a link to the radio program oh, good, on our good. on our website so that you can go back and listen to it. WGN has put it on their digital platform. So it's also great that we saw the new studio that WGN is in. They used to be at the Tribune Tower and now they have this really gorgeous new studio facility. Right on the river. And they just moved in like in June, yeah. So it's all fresh and clean and really, it was really, really nice. fresh and clean. Yeah it was. The green room was a little stark, didn't you think? Well it wasn't green. To begin with, it was not green. Yeah. But it was, that was fine. But it was a beautiful facility. It was. Well, welcome to episode 85, Frank. Yeah, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. You did do something this past week that I unfortunately could not get to, but I do want to hear your thumbnail review. Our friend Christine McHugh, which we talked about on previous episodes, had a show at the Greenhouse Theater this past week called Parents Must Be Dead. Yes, she did. She did. And was it well attended? How was the response? Oh, it was response? sold out. It was packed. It's been sold out for weeks. And it was wonderful. She is so charming. This is something that she wrote, and she's doing a one-woman show. It's about an hour long. And she deals with the fact that both of her parents, as well as her beloved nanny, all died within a three-year period. And so she had to sort of deal and cope with all of that, not just the loss, but there was some caretaking involved. And this is all about how she dealt with the grief and the recovery. Somewhat about grief and recovery, although it was more exercising certain things, some difficulties. It wasn't so much how she coped with the grief. There was just different ways she reacted, and she was able to express it. And the title is kind of fun. She obviously is dealing with aging parents, and she had a friend who would go on dates. He was in his mid-50s, and so he was looking for someone around his own age. And whenever he found out that they had or were living with an aging parent, he was out, even if they were funny and that charming was a swipe, and all the rest of it. That was a swipe left that or a swipe right. S- Which way do you go? S- left or right? No. I don't know. So sometimes he wouldn't find that out until they were actually on the date. Okay. So he put in his profile, parents must be dead. <laughs> That's where she gets the t- title from. And uh, along with, you know, good personality, nice smile. You so know, that was a condition was of a dating? condition of the date. Must, must love sunsets, walking on the correct. beach, pina coladas, mm-hmm. and parents, parents must, must be, be dead. dead. <laughs> Charming. And so I'm not sure how he did. She didn't go into that because it was her story. But nevertheless, that was one of his conditions. It's a very for a specific condition. <laughs> it is. And it's an odd title. So you're like, okay, yeah. what? Yeah. And then once she says that, of course, everyone laughed and we got it then. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Is she on tour? Is she doing this in other places? She's doing it, I believe, in Bloomington this weekend. I don't know if she's doing it at Illinois Illinois Wesleyan Wesleyan University. Yeah, that's where you guys went and where you knew her, and actually where I knew her, too. 
but she's doing like three or four other cities. She lives in Santa Fe, but she's doing three, and she's done a couple times in Santa Fe. She's doing it in some other cities. If you look up Christine McHugh, M-C-H-U-G-H, and Parents Must Be Dead, remember that title, you should be able to find it. Well, hopefully it'll be coming to a location near you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Christine McHugh, congratulations. I'm Mm -hmm. glad you enjoyed the show. That was wonderful. It was wonderful. You heard his voice uh, at the very top of the broadcast And you may have heard his laughter as well during uh, the last few moments, but I want to formally introduce our guest. In the booth today is the very talented and entertaining Jerry Dye. Hey, welcome to the booth, Jerry. And entertaining, no less. (laughs) Thank you so much, sir. (laughs) You are talented and entertaining, am I right? Ask anybody. Because we may have to just curtail this show if you're not. Just cut it short. Get rid of him. You are from the South, my friend, are I you am. not? I am. I'm very much from the South, yeah. Who are your favorite Southern writers? Favorite Southern writers. Eudora Welty. I, oh, yeah. The, the Eudora Welty short story is a thing to behold. I have a friend that went to school at uh, Millsaps you know, mm-hmm. College in Jackson, which is where Miss Eudora used to live. Jackson, that, Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. And so they would have Eudora sightings all over <laughs> All over Jackson. So she would always go to the Jitney Jungle uh, grocery store across the street. And my friend Mary Vassar would always like stalk her and follow her through the produce <laughs> section because she said there was nothing quite as beautiful as seeing Eudora Welty thump a melon. <laughs> In the in the Jitney Jungle, it just seemed there's some to be some poetic justice to that moment. <laughs> she clearly adored Eudora Welty. I saw what adored you did there. Adora. Yeah, did. yeah. Wow. Let me tell yeah. the folks a little bit about you and why I asked about your favorite writers. Jerry Dye is a Chicago-based librettist and playwright, recipient of the award for dramatic literature from the Fellowship of Southern Writers. Mm-hmm. You grew up in Mississippi and spent most of your young adult life in the South in various places. Absolutely. I grew up in um, a little town called Amory. Population, (laughs) it's small. (laughs) It's really small. Uh, And lovely. How small? More than 100? Oh, more than 100. Uh, No, it's a metropolis. You kidding me? Uh, No, it's uh, it was born. It was the first planned community in the great state of Mississippi, because the railroads converged right there in Amory. So there were two guys, Mister. I think I mean if I tell this wrong, people from Amory are going to be mad at me. (laughs) But there was Mister. Amory, I believe, and Mister. Saltillo were the names. And they were going to found the, for the railroad, they were going to, you know, found the city together, but then they got into a fight, like, along the way. Suddenly, all the, the streets started converging at weird angles, because they got into a fight and started claiming their own land. So the city, you, you can't hardly, the town, you can hardly drive through it, because you have to, you're constant taking, you know, it's 60, 70 degree angles to go. It's uh, a Greenwich Village. It, it is. Crazy. It's like Greenwich Village. Greenwich only, Village. Only really not. <laughs> Let me yeah. mention your current opera projects, the Commission for Opera Philadelphia with composer Jennifer Higdon. I did a concert with Jennifer Higdon in my day job when I work I worked for a symphony orchestra, and we did one of her pieces this past season, Dance Card. Yeah, wonderful, she's, wonderful. She's piece. And, and she's also she's, just a delightful human. Oh. I love her to death. She's yeah. also from the South, right? She is. She's from, I believe, I, I think she's right outside of Murfreesboro. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. we bonded. Uh, I'm from Mississippi, but I also lived, graduated from high school in East Tennessee, outside of Chattanooga. Oh. So, so we were kind of in that same area. Another opera you've been working on is Taking Up Serpents for Washington National Opera with composer Kamala Sankaram. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit more sure. about that. Your play Cicada had its Chicago premiere in 2014 with Route 66 theater company right here in Chicago while a play called Distance premiered in 2016 with Straw Dog Theater Company. Both works nominated for Jeff Awards. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you very much on that. Other works for the stage include short stories, threads, the new adventures of, not the old adventures, Frank, the new adventures of Hansel and Gretel. Apparently so. You have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) They ate some other houses. (laughs) Wild Swans and something called Live Studio Audience. You have a great 
speaking voice, I assume that you started your career as an actor. I did. I did. I went to theater school at Memphis, Tennessee, mm-hmm. University of Memphis. It was, I think it was Memphis State at the time. Ah. Graduated from high school in Memphis and then, you know, did what actors do. I was a vagabond for most of my life, doing anything <laughs> and everything I possibly did. you meet did. our friend Cecilia Wingate I, while you were in college? I met Cecilia Wingate long before college. I met Cecilia Wingate when I was 12 years old. She was besties with my eldest brother, who was also an actor, which is really in many ways I have to give him credit for, uh, for, for he made me an actor in so many ways he certainly made me an artist in a lot of ways but they were besties when he was in uh, college yeah she came to visit one weekend and I, and I completely fell in love and then I lucked out by moving back to Memphis and kind of rekindling a relationship as adults oh. and uh, yeah she's my Cecilia's my muse she's a force of nature and a woman of will mm. she's something else well she was on just our last episode, right. so Two episodes um, we ago, know what yeah. you're talking about now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Your brother was the late actor John Dye, yes. yeah. star for many seasons of the program Touched by an Angel. That he was. Ah. Unfortunately, we lost him quite young. Yeah. You've touched on this already yeah. a little bit. What sort of relationship did you have with your brother, and was he an inspiration to you? I gather oh God, that yes. he was the one who dragged you kicking and screaming <laughs> into the theater world. Yeah, I, we were eight years apart, so that's that, that's that good window of age where there's not that crazy competition. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Right. And he really was as much of a father figure as he was anything. But yeah, he, you know, he moved to Los Angeles directly out of college before he even finished college. So when I was, I guess, in junior high school, I... Uh, I took my first trip to Los Angeles and, you know, got to see performance art. And so here I am being exposed to this other way of being in the world, you know. Yeah. And I really, in many ways, held my hand through being uh, being a, an artist, being an outsider, being a, being a gay kid. And he was, uh, yeah, he saved my life in many, many ways and exposed me to all things fabulous and sophisticated and worldly and you know and yeah so uh it was a natural progression of things when I, I knew that I was going to be an actor being a kid sitting in a theater I remember watching him direct a production of Grease at a community theater and just I was a little theater mouse watching it happen and I was always interested in the moving parts you know how the thing got constructed or built or and the, the interchange of personalities, and I love that. You spent quite a lot of time out in Hollywood when you were younger trying mm. to break into the acting profession. Yes. You I wouldn't have, recommend it. I think that <laughs> you've characterized it those years as wandering in the wilderness. I was uh, wandering in the wilderness, yeah. indeed, indeed. Well, tell us a little bit about your L.A. experience. Uh, you auditioned quite a lot. I take yeah. it. You know, I did. I got there and I was young. It was like right, usually in LA, it was right at the birth of those kind of Aaron Spelling shows, uh-huh. you know? So I was always going out for like some lughead or some, usually it was someone uh, psychotic or some, <laughs> off kilter. <laughs> you know, they always wanted me for some like sensitive, broken human. Yeah. And I, <laughs> you know, I booked some gigs and um, it just, I just remember being in my 20s and not really not knowing who I was and not knowing the shape of me. And being in those auditions and just feeling uh, disconnected and like, why am I doing this? And then I it was there for five years. I mean, I put in, mm. I put in some time. It did. And, um, and then I left and I went to go be a weirdo. I went and I, I became a dancer and I worked with puppet theater companies and buto <laughs> dancers. And, you know, I just, I, yeah. I went on this excursion to make a, big a mess as I could possibly make. Now, don't know? sell yourself too short. <laughs> you were in the 1993 blockbuster hit, The Beverly Hillbillies. Someone did their research. Starring Jim Varney. Remember Jim oh, Varney, I do Frank? remember that. The movie version. The movie version yeah. of The Beverly Hillbillies. You were a dancer in this movie? I was a dancer in this lovely, illustrious film, and, claim to fame, I had the luxury of teaching Lily Tomlin how to clog. <laughs> Thank you very much. I uh, uh, I can still and now clog. she's a world famous clogger. If you want to, it could be an audio experience. I could clog for you. Uh, yeah, I didn't know how to dance or I didn't know how to clog, and uh, knew a friend of a friend who said, "Do you need your SAG card?" I said, "Yes, I absolutely do." And he said, "Can you clog?" And did what all actors mm, always do. Can I? Yes, <laughs> I can clog. No, I could not clog. Not at all. Is this like river dance clogging, or is this more? It's more wooden shoe. Depends kind of dancing, on how you it? talk to. So no, it's a it's Country. it's roots. It's roots dancing, right? It's 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 a based in like Irish jig kind of uh, uh, dancing. Yeah. So yeah, I like kind of uh, yeah a, a bit of a hodgepodge between like it's like tap only a little lower to the ground, you know, mm-hmm. a little yeah. more a little more heel. 
How did you transition into playwriting? <laughs> from, Which, from clogging? From clogging. In the Beverly yeah, Hillbillies? That's, that's yeah, that's a long uh, <laughs> distance. Uh, how uh, did this I program's t- only an hour long. So. I know, right? <laughs> I started making plays around that time. And I was interested in, you know, different ways of making plays. And um, my education coming up through college, I have weird Chicago ties. My mentor was a, is a lady named Gloria Baxter. She was in school with Frank Galati. And oh. those guys in the kind of that, that wave that was happening at Northwestern with a narrative theater, you know, adaptations of literature. So she was educated in that world as the 60s in uh, Northwestern. And then she moved to Memphis and taught in Memphis. Oh. So a lot of my upbringing was in kind of playmaking from the beginning, adaptation, playmaking. So it was in my, it was in my bones. And I was writing plays when I was at, you know, high school. But formally, I moved after Los Angeles. It was San Francisco, after San Francisco is New York. And then I moved back to Memphis, uh, to Memphis in this very weird set of circumstances to be the artistic director of a theater company there. It was this play, beautiful playground with some of my old friends, and we just made art constantly. So that's when, I think, probably when Nose to the Grindstone, real writing you know, started happening for me. Um, and I wrote my first uh, series of plays. Frank, you and I are big movie fans. We are. Mm-hmm. We, we are. too. Yeah. We also like to read reviews of movies. Yes. And I love a well-written movie review mm. as much as anybody. I particularly love a well-written movie pan. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Dorothy Parker. Here's one that I just cannot pass up. I'll just read a couple of excerpts. This is by Jeanette Katsoulis, who's a film reviewer for the New York Times. Okay. All right, then, let's rip off the Band-Aid. Destination wedding is torture. <laughs> this is her opening sentence. I'm sure you've had some bad reviews somewhere along never, the line. Never, That's no, never. happened. I, I have so. no idea what you're talking about. And not just because this would-be romantic comedy is grating, cheap-looking, and a mighty drag. It also turns two seasoned, likable actors into characters you'll want to throttle long before the credits roll. Yeah, <laughs> oh, have you heard of this movie? Yeah, it's isn't it um, uh, Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves? It is absolutely yeah, yeah. Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves. Nothing here is as ailing as the screenplay by Victor Levin. Occasionally subdued extras <laughs> wander around to remind us there's a wedding somewhere in the vicinity, but so disconnected are they from our dueling stars that they might as well be in a different movie. They probably wish that they were. Oh, <laughs> oh, <dear>. I'm not <laughs> going. <laughs> well, has it even has it opened in Chicago yet? Do you think it will? It probably opened because they have names, but it may close very quickly. They're sort of movie stars. Yeah, they're well, and she's had a resurgence with Stranger Things. Totally. So she's back on the, I don't know about the A-list, but maybe the B-plus list. Well, she's still known as a accused shoplifter. (laughs) She she is. She'll have to live with that. (laughs) And then there's Keanu Reeves, who's as weird as anybody out there. So, I mean, now... Supposedly a really nice guy, though. I've heard he's like the nicest... I wouldn't be surprised. Really? Like, Yeah. yeah, like insanely generous. But after reading that, I kind of want to see it. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> totally. I mean, you know, yeah. yeah I want to see either a really good movie or a really bad movie. Yeah, you know? if you're going to get mediocre, don't. If you're going to yeah. get a bad review, yeah, this is the kind of bad review yeah. you want because people will go just to watch the train wreck. Yeah. yeah, I think we're leaving on Thursday for the Toronto Film Festival, so oh, I'll be nice. there for five days. So I will have reports when we come back. Jerry, you've been quoted as saying, "Everybody's born with a story." It's labeled on our backs. It's like a spell. I like that. Did I say that? You did. <laughs> nice. You did. Who uh, said that? What do you mean by that in say terms it again, of your though. writing? Oh, you need. <laughs> <laughs> I'm make Everybody's sure I really born said with it. a story. Yeah, yeah. It's ladled on our backs. Yeah. It's like a spell. Yeah. There's a uh, writer named Terry. Do you know Terry Tempest Williams? Do you know this writer? I'm, a, I'm afraid I don't. Phenomenal writer. Uh, Refuge, an unnatural history of family and place is one of her books. And I worked on an adaptation of uh, of that novel years and years ago. And she's she this human is she's like a mystic. She's amazing. So she came to Memphis during the the workshop of that show. And it was about her life and her family and a very intimate story. The kind of thing that you kind of have to brace yourself if you're gonna 
oh, you're going to adapt my life. Okay. Uh, you know, she, yeah. you could tell she was a little you know, it was tender. And she was very pleased with the experience. And right before opening night, she kind of gathered us all backstage. And she said, life is a spell that everything conspires to break. And I just think it's like a beautiful sentiment. Hmm. And she said, however, because out of sheer will of all of these people, you know, hashtag theater, all these theater people coming together in agreement, you know, you have, you have made the spell not break. So it probably came from that. Oh, wow. Interesting. Probably, and I have yeah. to give credit where credit's due. She's, uh, she's something else. You should totally check out her book. She's an environmentalist writer out of Salt Lake City. She hails from Salt Lake City. You write strong women's roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, c- is there another kind? Is there another kind? <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people that. They'll be like, you write strong women. I'm like, I've never known a woman yeah. that is not strong. Right. I really, it's like, it's amazing. And I grew up with them too. Uh, yeah, is that a childhood influence? Totally, totally. My mom chose to have children and gave up a career in as a writer in a lot of ways. And I watched her as a kid uh, in many ways subverting that energy and putting it in different places. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, if she had maybe not had me, she would have been the, you know, the head of a Fortune 500 company. Oh, yeah. or, or she would have been the head of a church, which she was a very re- devoutly religious woman. And, but, of course, women were not allowed to be in the pulpit. But she did everything else. You did know? you have more siblings other than your brother? Yeah, uh, there were three of us. Okay. Uh, my middle brother, Jamie, he's the sportsman. Ah. In the mix. Okay. Um, yeah, and, uh, and then the eldest, so just the three of us. Okay. Yeah. You're from Mississippi I am. originally? Fellow writer, Mississippi playwright Beth Henley, whose play Crimes of the Heart won the Pulitzer Prize in 1981, has praised your lyrical voice and distinctly Southern sensibilities, proclaiming you a vibrant force in the American theater. Well, it's high praise, and coming from Beth Henley, I can see it brings a little tear to your eye. Oh, no, you have no idea how good it makes me feel. I was doing a workshop production of a play in Memphis, and a a brilliant writer who was at the time, I think, the Moss Chair at uh, University University of Memphis. He happened to come see the show. Fantastic uh, fiction writer. uh, Richard Bausch is his name. Totally, you should read his work as well. Mm -hmm. He's a genius. He came to see the show, and he took me aside afterwards, and he went, okay, I'm going to recommend you for this prize. And I, and I didn't, you know, I just kind of was like, oh, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and then he like sent me a little email about the, the prize itself. And he said, so I need some samples for you to send because I, I have to vet your work. And also um, my associates have to uh, vet your work. We need two people to vet at least. And so I said, okay, where should I send it? And he said, oh, and he sent me Beth, <laughs> Beth's email address. And I like the floor dropped out. I was like, okay, okay, this is real. (laughs) (laughs) This is real. And yeah, she was just very kind. The Fellowship of Southern Writers is a fabulous institution. And Mm. it's like a who's who of Southern writers. So I felt really, really, really honored. You've transitioned a little bit into something that I'm not very (laughs) familiar with. I don't know a lot of librettists outside (laughs) of the, well, musical theater world, and usually they're lyric writers and called book writers. Mm. But a librettist writes the book and, I guess, lyrics for opera. Correct. That's kind of a niche occupation, (laughs) isn't it? It is. Uh... (laughs) You know, a lot of operas are taken from original source material. How did you fall into this? Yeah. New, new opera in the United States, it's, it's, it's actually really huge right now. Uh, a lot of, if you'll talk to a bunch of some opera folks that are, you know, been doing it for all of their lives, they say that this is kind of the golden age of opera in the United States. There's a lot of new work being made, um, mostly because opera, hallowed opera, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, they're in a dilemma to try to find out who this audiences now, right? Theaters are have always been a little nimble. Uh, opera's never been terribly nimble, but they are understanding that they need new people um, to watch their pieces. Well, I think people have seen Neil Carmen and they've seen these yeah. over and over again. Over and, and if over you're an again. opera and people fan, want them again. Yeah. They want them. They still want yeah. them, but they also would probably want to see some new things. If they really love opera itself yeah. and not just the works, that would be very exciting, I think, for an audience member. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, all the pieces that I'm working on are... Uh, our new works. Well, what's the process in terms of who comes up with the story? They bring you in, it sounds like. And then is it like, okay, make up some story, or here's the story, and here's the music? What's the process? When it's you been come different in? dances with every composer. Composers are like snowflakes. 
They're, they're <laughs> unique humans that, um, and everyone has their own process. In all of these cases, though, I would ask to write the story first. So it's always been kind of chicken before the egg. Giving first. you an idea, like it's about this woman who does or this. Not. Or, oh. or not. Or what's your, do you have any ideas? Great. Let's oh, go with oh, that. Wow. So really is in many ways like the, having an idea for writing a play. I've been working in opera for about six years. So about six years ago, I was asked to write, someone said, have you ever written opera before? I said, no. Do you want to? I said, yes. And uh, it was this odd scenario where stories were sourced from interviews that um, I was asked to do with people that had stories around this one building in Memphis, Tennessee, an old Sears Crosstown building, which was the uh, hub for distribution for Sears. And it had been derelict for like 20 years or so. And a bunch of concerned citizens had come together and said, let's save this building. Why? So in response to that, the local opera company said, hey, maybe we would create an opera about the building. So I went in, interviewed people that worked there, had family members. You can imagine it. This city, this building was huge. So it was like almost like a tiny town. And so there were lots of stories. And then they asked five composers to write music for five basically monodramas or arias, which could be one person or two people. So basically, I had grad school. I had a crash course with five composers <laughs> writing five pieces at one time that were going to be performed together. And it was, I just, it was exhilarating in many ways because noticing how different everyone's approach was, what the music ended up sounding like. And also sourcing material from actual humans was uh, also in terms of building audience around opera was like a really cool idea. You know, it was a cool idea. Yeah, People were like, wait, idea. oh, opera can do that too. And of course in theater, theater people know we do, you right, know, we do right. that. It's just one of our, one of our many tricks. A couple of those pieces ended up having a lot of traction and acted as kind of calling card for me in many ways. And from that, I started getting um, commission work from um, Washington National Opera, the Kennedy Center, and... Yeah, tell yeah. us a little bit about that project at the Kennedy Center coming up. Is it yeah, coming January. up? January. In wow. January, so yeah. you're working on mm. it now. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, January. Um, it is this the Taking Up Serpents project? Taking Up Serpents, yeah, with mm. Kamala uh, Sankaram. Yeah, she's a Brooklyn-based, uh, amazing composer. We, we are the same kind of weirdo in a lot of ways. We were asked to pitch some ideas to their... Uh, Washington National Opera has something called the American Opera Project. And they have two short pieces every year, like two uh, little shorties and one kind of more full length, which is usually about 60 to 70 minutes. And we were asked to pitch a 60, 70 minute idea. In addition to growing up a boring Methodist, I also went through a period of my <laughs> life as a kid growing up also evangelical. Oh, wow. So yeah, so uh, we had a big shift in a dynamic shift in my family. So I grew up also in this kind of charismatic church where I would see, as you can imagine, what I could I assess as a young person, the, the most boring people in the world, you know, like just dull as dishwater humans. But these people would speak in tongues and they would play tambourines and they would fall out on the floor and they would start <laughs> interpreting, you know, having oh visions, do you know? Yeah. So I, something about, I always say that's kind of why I do theater. My brother being one of those reasons. And then the secondary reason is because I realize that people are much more extraordinary than you think they are. And so this opera is, is certainly inspired by those kinds of experiences. I did not know any people. In our church, we did not handle snakes. But oh, I always say, I, but I knew people who did. So this is about snake charmers and yeah, snake, snake handlers. handlers yeah, yeah. it uh, follows the life of one um, young lady who uh, has received a phone call from her mother to ask her to come home, come home to Alabama to say goodbye to your father who has been bitten. And so the opera is her journey via Greyhound bus and memory to get back to oh. say goodbye to her father. Yeah. Will there be live snakes on stage? That has been the big debate. Yeah. We're having the uh, <laughs> next month. We're having our one and only big orchestral workshop next month. Mm. Hello, uh, Julie Taymor. Yeah. I know, right? We, we might need a, <laughs> need a snake. I directed a production of Talking with a number of years ago, and it has the snake handler yeah. in it. And the woman who was on stage, there was a box next to her, and you could see in the audience they were all looking at it. Mm. Is there really a snake? Is there really a snake? <laughs> and at the end, she opened it up and she looked at the audience. And she went, "Oh yeah," and it was a real 
little snake. It was very sweet. His name was Foxy. Wouldn't hurt a flea, but they, they sat there like this. Would there be a snake or not? The so, snake was named what? Foxy. Foxy. I didn't name it. It wasn't my snake. But <laughs> they said, oh, I got somebody. It was, he had one eye. Somebody said, like, Aww. oh, I've got a snake you can use. He's fine. And so we did. We did. But that tension, so even if you don't use a snake, you probably let people think there's going to be snakes. We definitely have a snake box on stage. Oh, do you? So yeah, there is that tension of the the snake box. We sometimes do a segment on our program called Good Times and Bum Times. Hmm? Uh, I'm going to do the Good Times one first. It's a good, good week for carnivores. And no one's a bigger carnivore than I am. I know that you're not, Frank. But I'm not that carnivorean. A good week because after the launch in upstate New York of the first raw meat vending machine. God. <laughs> what will they think of? Next? I know. Uh, the Applestone Meat Company says its refrigerated machines will let consumers purchase sustainably raised pork, beef, lamb, and sausage at any hour of the day or night. Mm. My kind of place. <laughs> wow. I'm watching a program called Making It, which is a, well, a reality program about craftspeople. They get craftspeople together in a big barn and they give them projects and every week someone is... Let go. It's it's a kind of... I binged it the other day. uh, Did you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's featuring Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler. It's their show. Because he's a craftsperson. He's a master woodworker. And the challenge last week was... It was crafting something with a party that had to have snacks oh, right. and, a snack moving, and a moving element. Some moving element, element. Yeah, yeah. And somebody made like an aquatic park with swimmers going through this sheet cake. and Swedish somebody, fish twirling on little <laughs> batons. It's, it's very elaborate. But every person that Nick Offerman went up to to see how they were progressing, no one had any meat. And he was very upset oh, about yeah, that. Yeah, he's a big meat eater. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, uh, a game snack is meat, not gummy sharks. Yeah, he was asking for prosciutto or something, or mortadella or something. Well, it was a bum week for British firefighters, and I'll tell you why, Frank. A pet parrot stranded on a roof greeted British firefighters who came to its rescue by berating them with a burst of (laughs) (laughs) F-bombs. Jesse the Macaw. Jesse the Macaw. Goodness. Jesse's owner called emergency services after the bird escaped its cage and spent three days perched on a house roof in North London. To win the trust of the parrot, Jesse's owner suggested the firefighter should just tell it, I love you, I love you, I love you. Uh, a fireman scaled a ladder and said the three magic words to Jesse, and Jesse squawked back, I love you. But the bird then told the fireman to F off. <laughs> <laughs> and launched into a foul-mouthed tirade. Uh, she eventually flew home of her own accord. Oh, my. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that kind of goes in the good times list for me. I you think. think that's a good yeah, time? Yeah, I think that's kind of a good yeah, time. Well, I, 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 had to, I had to choose the carnivores for my good time. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jerry, let's get back to opera writing again yes. for a moment. What, what would you say is the main difference between writing librettos for operas and playwriting? You, you've referenced some processes that you go through for both of them. What would you say is the, the main difference between those two types of writing? You know, the question you always, if I like first libretto reading is always, does it sing? That's the question. Does it sing? Even you know? in the, if just reading it flat. Yeah, does it, does it sing? And then, you know, because we, you can operate in different modes, you can operate in this kind of heightened poetic mode, but you can also, there's a conversational mode in opera. So there's not really a ton of ton of difference except it's the collaboration between the composer I think that's the thing that's been the most probably the most exciting aspect is <laughs> you know when you're a kid and you uh, you make a you make like a Christmas ornament out of popsicle sticks and you bring it home and you go, look what I made you know there is a degree of my job is to make someone smile you know my job is to inspire the composer uh, in many cases so when I turn in a libretto whether it's a whole or in pieces and parts they have to be able to parse out some sort of some sort of musicality in it or some sort of inspiration a theme that they can tease out and something that they can repeat the, another project that I'm working on right now uh, with also as, as a January premiere is with the United States Army, 
which is amazing. <laughs> wow. um, yeah, mm. so I was asked to go to Fort Meade, Bethesda, uh, Walter Reed Medical Center, and interview soldiers returning home from a war about their experiences. Mm. And then, again, source material on the ground um, from people, and then translate that into some sort of story. So those stories kind of came at me, mm-hmm. and the composer was in the room at the same time. So we're hearing and ah. assessing things together and finding out, like, oh, what are these repeatable phrases? What are these, what are the themes in the thing? Um, and then I've also built something from whole cloth, which is, was more, maybe more like writing a traditional play. My writing tends to be a little lyrical anyway. I like that space. Well, you're Southern. Yeah, I know. It, it, it comes, it's my birthright. comes with the territory. I think yeah. so. Isn't that strange? It, yeah. it, I think about that a lot. Uh, and growing up in the church and the rhythms of the church are in me. You know, that kind of, that kind of church language, that role, that rhythm is, is in me as well. Do you find playwriting to be a bit more of a lonely occupation? Totally. Uh, more so than being a librettist because you have Both so are many... equally lonely. Really? I think. Yeah, you know, as an, as an actor, I am so hungry to get in. I love rehearsal more than anything on the planet. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing more gorgeous than rehearsals. And I don't have that, you know. I'm Barbara Harris used to say that, the late, great Barbara, <gasps> Barbara Harris. Barbara I was oh, thinking I about her today. She used to say that. Oh. She used to say... I don't care about the performance because you got to go out there and do it the same way all the time. Yeah. I could rehearse forever, she said. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I love the rehearsal process as an actor. It's so like the anti it's the anti-loneliness. Writing feels like uh, being a painter or something, you know, that feeling of of being alone with your thoughts, which is it's uh, it's dangerous, I think. Yeah, really. <laughs> I yeah. need to, I usually have to find now that I've been writing full time these days, I've had to go back and find ways to shake that up. But I also think when you're working with someone who's writing the music, at least you have someone to go to, like, what do you think of this? Yeah. And they're like, yes, no. And then you kind of go back and forth as opposed to it's just you. And then here's my finished work. You got some, get some feedback from somebody who has a, who has stake in the, the outcome. Totally. Totally. I was reading an article about you, Jerry, the other day, and you describe yourself as a picture guy. And what mm-hmm. you meant by that is that every story starts with an image. Mm-hmm. Is that still true Typically. in your libretto writing as well? Yeah. I, I realize people come to you with projects sometimes or they pitch an idea. Yeah. Are you very visual that way in Very. terms of starting your writing process? Yeah, I have to have some kind of picture to hold on to typically. It, at least it's a starting place. You know, It may, may deviate, but yeah, some dynamic picture is always, uh, is always a jumping off place. Because I uh, direct as well. So I, I kind of employ all, all you this. direct as well. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> art. No, but it's it, you know, I, I, I think all about, I do is this podcast. <laughs> I know, and then go to work. It's survival. It's being an artist. You know, I, I've had to learn. Yeah. I also know how to write grants. Do you know? Yeah. <laughs> also oh. know how to change light bulbs. And we need mop floors we need someone sets. who knows how to do that. <laughs> but yeah, it's like that's the the more you survival, can do. right? Yeah. Survival yeah, yeah. is the is definitely the thing. When I was a, when I was a little kid, my great grandmother, whom I adored. Who was mean as dirt. She was awful. <laughs> she was an awful, awful person, but I, her awfulness just, I relished her awfulness. <laughs> but she would, she would trick me into doing housework for her by tricking me in different ways. One was she, she would let me rearrange her curio cabinet. Mm. Let me. I'm mm-hmm. doing air quotes, mm-hmm. rearrange her curio cabinet if I dusted it, right? Because you wanted to touch the things that were fragile and perfect and you can't touch. But it was like, this was the window of time. And I used to arrange the objects, some of them were little figurines and whatnot, in like d- dramatic pictures. You know, I would create <laughs> stories. It was like a shadow box. And I always say that was probably their, my, my, all my directorial Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mojo probably came from that. I, uh, that I know memory. a lot of directors who do that. They have to move pieces around yeah. on a chessboard mm-hmm. or on the actual set. You yeah. know, get little figurines, Creating stage and pictures, and the curio create cabinet. stage yeah. pictures. I also really cabinet. love actors like a lot. Mm-hmm. Something else, just watching people go. Yeah. We often play a little parlor game on this program mm-hmm. called Chat Pack. 
It's a series <laughs> of questions uh, designed to elicit some possibly personal responses. Mm-hmm. I don't know what these questions are. They've been chosen rather at random. Wondered if you'd be game enough to play with us today, Jerry. Always game. <laughs> <laughs> I like this guy. Yeah. I'm going to have to have him back. And we'll, we'll try to all play. Choose one of those. Now, here's the problem. I'm 47, and I don't have my readers on. Oh. Anybody want to read this for me? Yeah. No. Yeah. Seriously. Oh, look. <laughs> this is lovely. We're everyone, well, everyone. Well I was yes. just, hello, listeners. People handed me. There was a brigade of readers handed to me, which <laughs> made me feel right at home. If you had the ability to compete in an Olympic event, oof, which one would you choose to enter? Frank, you're already rolling your eyes. Well, I was thinking eating, but I don't think that's an Olympic <laughs> 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 um, Now, the question is not whether you'd be any good, because I'm sure I would suck at pretty much all of them. But which one would you like to be? Like speed skating, I think, would be fun. I would be horrible. I would fall down the first five seconds. But if I could, I think that would be a great one to do. Speed skating. Speed skating. I always love watching them whirl around Around the thing. Around that oval. Yeah, that or like that skiing where they come down a thing and go flying through the air. I think that would be exhilarated. I would end up on my head and dead. But if I could do it, I'd like to do that. I'm definitely more of a winter. It would be a winter sport. Okay. I know that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I am a homosexual. So, uh, you know, <laughs> figure skating just goes goes oh, territory, go. right? It's the outfits yeah. alone would uh, would pull me into the, <laughs> to the to the sport. Well, I'm not. <laughs> but I'm going to choose figure skating as well. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm opting into your sport. I love it. There have been one or two that weren't gay. I'm sure. At, some at least point. a couple. Yeah, yeah. At some point. You think? Maybe. I don't know any personally, so I can't really but tell But the outfits always are. Yeah. Which yeah, I yeah. love. Right. Yeah. Regardless. Mm-hmm. Let's play another one. Yeah. Why don't you choose that again? Okay. Pick those readers out. Hopefully it doesn't involve sports. That's <laughs> yeah. what I'm hoping for. One sports was enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you were to write a book, what would you choose as the topic of said book? Well, it wouldn't be my life. No one would want to read it. You know, I love reading, if not mysteries, stories that have some sort of mysterious element to it, which keeps you curious all the way through the book. So mm. if I was going to write one, I probably would feel most comfortable doing something like that. It would be sort of intriguing whether I figured out what the ending would be at the beginning or whether or not I would be sort of working it out like, oh, who should I have the murderer be or whatever as mm. I was going along. Mm. But that would probably be the only thing I could even think of me mm. doing. I've been wanting to write a book about my brother. Oh, yeah. Yeah. About John? Yeah, yeah. Just because he had an interesting life in that that kind of A, B, C, D levels of fame, you know, but he was on a show for 10 years that was really in, it was in everyone's living room, you know, it was like he was the... And he had a decent part. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, his whole like 10, you know, a decade of your life spent doing something. And he worked with... Every, I mean, he worked with everybody because of the the way, like, the guest, the kind of built-in framework in terms of story about having guest stars. Mm-hmm. So he, like, worked with, like, Kirk Douglas and you name it. Mm-hmm. Someone came through that show at some point. And he, and he also just had a, a kind of a weird and wonderful life. Yeah, so I've I've wanted to... I'd love to read that story. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah please write it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd write about... Yeah. I think I'd write about serial killers. <laughs> Yeah. I'm just fascinated by that whole genre. Mm. Possibly fiction, possibly true crime. Not sure. Hmm. <laughs> but serial killers, not just killers. There's no or, judgment at this table. Or yes, meat. Right. Or meat. <laughs> meat. <laughs> meat. I'm a big fan of Joni Mitchell. There's that great Joni Mitchell line where she says, I'm frightened by the devil, but I'm drawn to those that ain't afraid. That's Ooh. like the serial killer book, right? Like that feeling of like, I love, I, that, those kinds of stories just get me every time those true crime stories. Yeah. yeah. Of them. Let's play one more. Okay. What is the most interesting course you have ever taken in school? On the other hand, comma, what is the most boring course you've ever <laughs> taken in school? <laughs> Boring world religions. I just could not get my head around it. And I, I think we had a very dry professor who didn't inspire. It wasn't Jesus, that's for sure. <laughs> that might have been good. <laughs> 
Mine was definitely Algebra 2, because when Ugh. we got to the point where we were talking about imaginary numbers, I said, I'm out. Mm-mm. I am out. No. I will do numbers. You do imaginary numbers. No, not doing it. Yeah, I, I, anything involving numbers just makes me, yeah, it <laughs> flips me out. I, I remember being a kid and learning multiplication tables and having nervous breakdowns uh, <laughs> over that. But in college, I had to take a, a one called Concepts of Numbers, which on the front end, I thought, oh, okay, concept, like, mm-hmm. what, what is a number? Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm in, and it was just not a good idea. It was bad. It was bad. <laughs> bad as hell. That was the worst. <laughs> and best? Well, it's got to be a theater class, I suppose. Yeah theater classes I took in college were wonderful. Yeah. I took an absurdist theater class Ooh, once with, with uh, our friend Carol Brandt. Ah. And it was uh, thrilling. Oh, I can imagine. She'd be great at that. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. And I learned more in that class than I think in all the other mm. classes I took uh, in college. Mm-hmm. Did you have a really good class, Jerry? I did. Uh, my, my mentor, she taught a class it was directing narrative theater. And w- the first thing that we had to do in class was we had to keep a dream journal and then we had to direct one of our dreams in class Ooh. but the but the direction your direction had to reflect the quality of the dream like wow. the texture of the dream oh, which nice. is you're right it's so yeah. it, it moves your brain in different directions yeah and then there was a site specific element of it so there were all kinds of like you know, and probably an absurd element too because dreams off times go off into weird directions yeah for our listeners' sake, I want to let them know that your name, Jerry, is spelled J-E-R-R-E. Yes. I almost want to call you Jerry. Don't. Because <laughs> I, I, I know you don't care for that. What an interesting name. Um, yeah, it is. It is spelling it is, it is just Jerry. It doesn't sound like anything. It's not anything else. So when I was a kid, I was the youngest of three. I think my mom thought I was the youngest. I was the last and I think she wanted to make it count, I guess. She was in the hospital. I was about to be born premature. She taught Bible study. There was this young man, his name, his real name is Jerry Pickle. Uh, <laughs> that's the Pickle Funeral Parlor, just so you know. Uh, in, in, in your Amory, Miss, Yeah, in Amory, Mississippi, the funeral parlor, the local funeral parlor, where every one of my family members who have passed were all put in inter- interred into the ground by the pickles. Uh, so Jerry Pickle, who was uh, <laughs> related to the picklers, the people picklers, I think indirectly related, but yeah. So he came to visit my mother in the hospital, and he was in high school at the time, and he was this big old hawking dude, and he came to her to console her, to make her feel better, and he said, I just want to tell you, Miss Di, you, you're going to... And he just started, like, crying, and it was very out of character for him, and it moved my mother so deeply that my name was going to be Andrew, which I actually think I look like an Andrew more than I look like yeah, a Yeah, there's a lot of Andrews Isn't around funny? these it's days, true. yeah. And also, Drew, 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 Drew Dye is a bad, it doesn't scan very <laughs> well. Dye. So Drew she, at Dye. the last minute, she changed my name to Jerry. Now, Jerry, his nickname was Horsey. <laughs> so I was almost... Horsey Pickles? I was named after Horsey Pickle. <laughs> Oh, pickle, horsey, singular. Horsey pickle. <laughs> yeah. You lucked out. Even uh, though the, she spelled it oddly, you lucked out. I did luck out. I did luck out. Horsey's not your middle name or anything. No. Like my middle name is Duval. Oh, that's Which cool. is my mother's maiden name. It's also very Southern. It, Duval. Have, Duval, yeah, Duval. Du, well, if you're from Mississippi, it's Duval. 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 Uh, Jerry Duval. But then she decided to change the spelling just to be a little different. I think she did. Yeah. Well, first of all, we're all J's. My whole family, John, Jamie, Jerry, Jim. My granddad was Jack. My Was her name Jay, too? Your uh, mom? My mom was Lynn. <laughs> but in addition to there being this, she being the only L word, there was <laughs> my grandmother was this fabulous... Man, she was a bizarro, amazing woman. So she was, uh, my grandmother was, when she was in her 30s, she was diagnosed with cancer, and this was, uh, no, 20s, diagnosed with cancer, and this is in, like, this is in the early 40s, or mid-40s. And, you know, that... The, the chances of survival yeah. were not so great. Yeah. So in the middle of the night, they scooped her up and they took her to the hospital. And she had some of the first exploratory surgery. And she would tell stories about the radiation that she had that was like a big, you know, a big lever that you pull. Oh just horror, horror stories. But she came home after the surgery and the recoup was amazing because she was literally cut stem to stern and sewn up in clamps. And she was at home. And my mother cared for her 
as a five, six, seven-year-old. Oh, my. Yeah, so like, hello, family dynamic. <laughs> but she, my grandmother came out on the other side of that, this kind of very mystical, she, she really just died a few years ago. Oh, wow. But this kind of bizarro, wonderful mystic. And she was not necessarily a numerologist, but she loved double letters. So she would take credit for the spelling because mm. it's J-E-R-R-E and she loved the symmetry of mm. the name. The and then e. Duval, yeah. D-U-V-A-L-L. She kind of liked that whole... Duval. My mother was Lynn Marie, L-Y-N-N-M-A-R-E-E. Oh. So yeah, so I think the, so the actual DNA spelling there, yeah. really came from her. And the concept came from. And your mother. brothers don't have that; they have regular. Style. No, 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 no. Yeah. John and Jamie. John yeah. and Jamie. They're awesome. That's yeah. not Jamie. Yeah. E. No. Okay. Just James David. Well, if you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best and lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests like Jerry Die, <laughs> my mm-hmm. friend, you can go to our website at www.booth-1. That's O-N-E. dot com. And click on the donate button. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any contribution would be greatly appreciated. And I'm looking at our producer. Are we still offering the Rick Kogan signed book for a donation of $100 or more? The answer is yes, Yay. ladies and gentlemen. Frank, you're not too late. <laughs> no, I've already got I've already read it. It's a fabulous book. It's a great book. Everybody Pays is the book, co-written with Maurice Posley, yeah. uh, about a real Chicago mob land mm-hmm. case. Hitman, yeah. yeah. About a hitman. It's and not about corruption. serial killers, no. but it's about hitmen and corruption, corruption, that's for sure. A contribution of $100 or more gets you a signed book from Rick Kogan of Everybody Pays. Well, Jerry, we always finish our podcasts with a segment we call The Kiss of Death. Mm. Don't get nervous. Don't get scared. It's really a celebration of someone who has recently passed, mm-hmm. who we're going to give them it's their due. It's been a big week for oh. that, too. It has sure been a big has. week. Yeah. It's almost been impossible to choose. But I'm going back uh, a couple of months for this one. The world's oldest person has died Oh, Again. Really? <laughs> okay, yeah, true. Again? Every couple of months, we lose the next one. At 117 years Ooh. old, wow. Nabi Tajima was older than modern-day Australia <laughs> and everybody else known to live on the planet. Tajima was born in 1900 in Akara, Japan, and recognized as the world's oldest person and was the last known person born in the 19th century. Oh. Tajima was in the exclusive group of super centenarians, people who have crossed the 110-year threshold. The U.S.-based gerontology research group reports that there are 36 of these worldwide. All but one of them are women. (laughs) What does that say? I don't know. It's not very encouraging. And 18 of them are Japanese. Good diets and supportive family structure have been, (laughs) yes, linked to Japan's world-leading life expectancy. I've heard that they are quite healthy well into their old age. Yeah, obviously, if they're, if they're, most of them are, are Japanese. But, I mean, there may be something in the diet, but it also could be hereditary, some kind of gene that they have, which if you're not Japanese, you don't have. I don't yeah, know. Tajima straddled the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries and wow. is one of the few people who could recall a time before World War I. She had nine children and 160 descendants, wow. including great-great-great-grandchildren. Wow. Tajima's secret to longevity? Eating delicious things and sleeping well. Uh-oh. There you go. I'm I writing, can, that, I'm writing do. that down. Yeah. <laughs> Chio Miyako, also in Japan, has become the world's oldest person at 116 years and 355 days. She has about five months to reach her countrywoman's mark of 117 years and 260 days. Mm. Nabi Tajima, world's oldest person. More to come on that. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, there will be more. <laughs> Jerry Dye, thank you for being our guest yes. today on Thank Booth you for yes. having me very much. Thank you so much. You are a true treat. Congratulations on all your success, and we wish you nothing but great things in the future, especially with your upcoming opera at the Kennedy Center. And we'll keep people posted on how Please, it's all going. I'm very and yeah. We'll yeah. be watching for it Absolutely. for sure. 
Well, visit booth-one.com. That's booth-one.com yep. for prior episodes and more information about our program and your hosts. For Booth One, this is Gary Sabinski. And Frank Taranjo. Saying so long and keep listening. Thank you.